Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 25? We're in Jeremiah 25. I feel like each chapter we come to in this book, before I read it, I feel the need to preface it or apologize for it or lighten the impact of it. But there's a lot of power in opening God's word and reading exactly what's there. And so I'm going to read for us from Jeremiah 25, beginning in verse 15. Hear God's word. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as to this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, and all his people, and all the mixed tribes among them, all the kings of the land of Uz, and all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnants of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, and the kings of the coastland across the sea, Dedan, Tema, Buzz, and all who cut the corners of their hair." All the kings of Arabia and all the kings of the mixed tribes among them in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam and the kings of Media, all the kings of north, far and near, one after another, and the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth, and after them the king of Babylon shall drink. Thus you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink, Be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending among you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we tremble when we hear words of wrath and judgment for sin. When we feel this white hot anger against all rebellion and idolatry, We're afraid. Would you give us courage to hear these words this morning? Would you give us courage to hear bad news before we can hear good news? You can do that, and you can change us through that. And so we ask for it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Fall and rise no more. Now, honestly, this week, as I read that passage and as I began to study it, I thought to myself, would it be so bad to skip ahead to a lighter section? I mean, would it be so bad to leave this chapter behind us and go to something else? There's only so much drinking and vomiting and hissing and desolation a person can possibly hear. And if we're 25 chapters into Jeremiah, we've heard our fair share of all of those things. Believe it or not, Jeremiah 25 is kind of like a halfway point in the book. After this point in Jeremiah 25, things get worse for the people of Judah because they are in the shadow of Babylon and Babylon is coming to judge them. But the promises that God makes to Judah get sweeter and brighter as we go. Just in a few weeks, we're going to read these words. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's going to come right out of Jeremiah, right in a few weeks from today. And my question is, can't we just skip ahead to that part? 
I mean, can't we leave this in our rearview mirror? Can't we get to those promises that God is going to give us? I am under full conviction that we need to venture into God's awful, terrifying hatred of sin today. We cannot possibly avoid it. If we started to do that, if we started to avoid these passages of scripture about our sin, and if we spent a lot more time in the passages that are sweet and bright and talk about good things, if we avoided the places in scripture that talk about God's hatred for our sin in favor of the places that talk about God's love for us, at least three things will begin to atrophy in our lives. We avoid this, we skip this, we go to the other. You will notice three things affected in your own Christian life. Number one, my impression of my own sin will soften. If I avoid this, my impression of my sin will soften. It's no surprise that there's not a single person in this room who takes our sin as seriously as we ought And the more time we spend away from scripture and these parts of scripture, the more we're left to build our own impressions of our sin. We think about it as an unpleasant, if ever present companion, but it's at least not as bad as it could be, right? Every one of us knows somebody who's worse than us, right? Everybody knows a Christian who's worse than us, and we kind of judge ourselves to be in the middle of the pack with respect to our obedience, If we do that, we are shocked when we read verses like 1 Peter 2.11, which says, Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There are passions that are waging war against our soul this morning. If I skimp on Jeremiah 25, I get soft on sin. Sin will never be soft with me. It will never be soft with me, the Bible promises. But if I skimp on these passages, I'll get soft on sin. Number two, my urgency to evangelize dulls. I begin to presume on God's goodness for my friends and neighbors. I begin to wonder if everything's just going to kind of work itself in, out in the end. I skimp on supporting missionaries. I don't initiate gospel conversations with unbelievers. My prayers for the lost, they get brittle and sparse. In short, I forget Romans 1, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. If my neighbor knew what was in Jeremiah chapter 25, like she really, truly knew what was in this chapter, and she saw how utterly unmotivated I am to talk to her, she would grab me by the collar and scream, what are you doing? What are you doing? What is so important in your life that you are wasting this time with me and you are piddling these years in our neighborhood? What are you doing with the time that you have? If I skimp on Jeremiah 25, my urgency for evangelism, it begins to dull. And number three, my view of Jesus' work on the cross shrinks. What do I mean by that? 
Very simply, the smaller I imagine my sin, then the smaller I imagine the distance between God and I, which means the smaller I perceive my need for a savior, which means the smaller I actually perceive what Jesus has done on the cross for my behalf. Jesus, he once challenged a self-righteous Pharisee by saying there was a money lender who forgave two debts. One was 50 denarii, which is like 50 days worth of work. And another was 500 denarii, which is like 500 days of work, which person will be more grateful for the forgiveness. And Simon the Pharisee had to answer the 500 denarii debtor. If I skimp on Jeremiah 25, I will begin to fancy myself as a 50 denarii debtor. All I needed from God, all I needed from Jesus was a little boost to to get me there. I was essentially halfway there myself. I'm a decently good person and all I needed was a boost to get me to God. Honest, biblical talk about sin is desperately needed. And so to Jeremiah 25, we must go. We must spend this time there. When Jeremiah was first called as a prophet, it happened 23 years before this point in Jeremiah 25. He was a young and a timid man, and God said to him, I'm appointing you as a prophet to the nations. And this is really one of the first times that begins to come into focus. Because in verses 17 through 26, you have this roll call of judgment. It's announced over the known nations of the ancient Near East. This is who is going to be judged. And did you notice the first nation to lead the list in verse 17? It's Judah. It's Jerusalem. It's the people of God. 1 Peter 4.17 says that judgment is coming and it is going to begin with the household of God. It's going to begin with the church. It's going to begin with people who call themselves Christians, who talk like Christians and act like Christians. That's where the judgment is going to begin and it is going to go from there to the nations. It's going to pass from Judah to Egypt and to these small nations surrounding Israel and then farther off to Arabia and to Media until verse 26, all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth and finally that judgment will land on Babylon herself. God's hatred for sin in these nations is described as a cup of wrath. It's a cup of wrath that is going to be served. This cup, it shows up three times in our passage. It's going to happen two more times in the book of Jeremiah. It's in Isaiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel and other books of scripture. I think one of the most haunting descriptions of the cup of wrath comes in Psalm 75, 8, which says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. God is infinitely worthy of worship. He is infinitely worthy of every fiber of our beings responding to him in praise and worship. He's God. He's made us, he has formed us, he's revealed himself to us so that we know who he is. 
He's loved us. He's walked with us. He's shown you, oh man, how you are to live. He has done all of these things for us. And when we as human beings, we turn our back on him in sin and rebellion and idolatry, we are infinitely deserving of his everlasting judgment. There's a cup of wrath that is coming. It is seething. It is foaming. It will be served to the nations and those who reject God will drink it to the dregs. That's awful, terrifying news in Jeremiah chapter 25. But we know the story of scripture. We know that the Bible gives us, if we can hear the bad news, sweet and precious and life-giving news. And that is that the very reason that Jesus has come is to provide himself as a substitute for us. If we confess to God that we are indeed sinners and rebels, if we trust that God has really sent his son Jesus to live and die and rise again from the dead to save us, then God will take all of our sin, he will place it on his son Jesus, and Jesus will be our substitute for judgment. That's the promise of scripture. Just yesterday, I was riding in the car with my kids and my six-year-old was sitting in the way back of our van and he was thinking long and hard about something. And then he finally asked me this question. He said, Dad, if I do something wrong and the police come to arrest me and they're going to take me to jail, would you go to jail for me? My six-year-old asked me that question, and I said, whoa, 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 first of all, what are you planning to do? Like, what, what, what exactly are we talking about here? And then I said, secondly, it, it doesn't actually work that way. Like, I would do that for you on my good days, but that, that's not how this is going to fly. You do a crime, and you're going to do the time yourself. That's the exact opposite of what we hear in the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus. He provides himself as our substitute, as our legal representative. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us, we've turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We sat at the table of judgment. There was a cup of wine that was served to our place and Jesus has reached for that cup And he drinks that cup to the dregs, and not a drop remains for those who are in Christ. When that happens in scripture, when we watch that unfold in the gospels, it is terrifying to watch. It's terrifying to watch Jesus drink that cup. We know that hours before he's arrested, hours before he's going to hang on the cross, he retreats to this garden with his disciples to pray. And as he did, he felt the agony of God's anger pressing down on him. And he cries out to the father in his prayer, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now think about that scene for a moment with me. We know that the crucifixion was planned before the foundations of the world. When God created the world, he knew that humanity was going to reject him and run from him. 
God knew this, and imagine this. He knew that by creating the world, it was going to cost him the life of his son. Jesus knew that the road to his crown was going to come through the cross. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, they were in complete cooperation for our salvation. None of those parties were left in the dark. There were no fine print. There were no contingencies. Jesus came and he came to die. After three years of ministry, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem and he tells his disciples, I must go there and suffer many things and then I will die. When Peter says that, when Peter hears that, he grabs Jesus and says, let's do this another way. And Jesus snaps and rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. You've got your mind on the things of men and not on the things of God. Jesus came and he came to die. And yet, when that moment actually came and Jesus was alone in the garden because his disciples were sleeping... And he was in agony and he was praying earnestly and sweats like drops of blood began to pour from his face and he began to feel the white, hot, infinite hatred of God for sin and rebellion. It was almost too much for Jesus. We hear the closest thing to faltering on a promise that we will ever hear from the mouth of God. Father, it's me, your son. If you will it, you could take this cup from me. You can do that. And I won't have to drink it. And I won't feel your hatred for my sin. And I won't be wrenched from your presence. And yet it's not my will, which is not to drink it, but your will, which is to drink it, be done. And it's almost as if through this prayer, if you could say this about the Son of God, Jesus' resolve to drink was restored. He spends this time with his Father, and he is now resolved he will drink the cup of wrath. Armed guards, they come in the night to this garden. They find him. They have torches. Jesus' disciples come alongside of him. There's a scuffle. Peter, he strikes the ear of Malchus. And Jesus says to him, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I'm going to drink the cup. Put away your sword. And Jesus does. On the cross... Jesus takes this cup of wrath, the cup that was described to us in Jeremiah 25, the cup that's in Isaiah 51 and Ezekiel 3, the cup of Psalm 75, foaming and seething, the cup of desolation and waste and hissing and curse, the cup that those who drink it will become drunk and vomit and fall and rise no more, and Jesus takes the cup and he drinks it to the dregs. The cup that should have passed from Jeremiah 25 to us to drink, it passes over our heads and to Jesus, and he drinks it to the dregs, and not a single drop remains. If you have trusted in Christ, if you are in Christ this morning, the cup of wrath has been drunk in your stead. You're not going to taste a drop of it. 
you're not going to feel a moment of God's fury for your sin. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are cherished. You come this morning to the Lord's table and you will drink a cup, but it is not the cup of wrath. It is the cup that proclaims your forgiveness in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, as scary as it is to pray, I pray that you would allow us to feel even just a drop of your anger for our sin. Let us know what it costs to send your son to the cross as our substitute to pay for the wrath that you have for our sin and let us cherish the gospel all the more. We pray that you would do that in us and through us in Jesus' name, amen.